Hello everyone and welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. I am your host, Osman Mughal. Firstly, I hope everyone is keeping well and safe during what is a very uncertain and challenging time for people and organisations up and down the country. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with a very special guest. He has previously worked for Arthritis Care and Maggie Centres. More recently, he has spoken at the Institute of Fundraising's Trust Conference held last month and he has overseen substantial growth in the last two and a half years as Head of Trust at Sue Ryder, Andy Watts. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you, Esmen. Good to be here. I'm delighted to have you on. I know that we've spoken a few times previously, and I'm really interested um, to have you on to learn more from you about trust fundraising. And so really looking forward to our conversation today, and hopefully um, our listeners can take a lot from from what you say. Um, before we kind of delve into the podcast itself and talk about the world of trust fundraising, I just wanted to gain your insights into your experience about presenting at the Trans Conference last year and what the areas that you spoke about and why do you think it's so important where fundraisers and funders come to the same um, venue um, to discuss ideas and create solutions for the beneficiaries that we want to serve? Yes, uh, so uh, I, I spoke at the uh, conference for the uh, the second time uh, in uh, in February, uh, which feels a long time now, especially with everything that's uh, happened uh, in in the recent uh, recent weeks. Uh, so um, I um, I spoke with uh, a um, uh, a colleague, uh, Vicky Hayden Ward, who is the head of fundraising at the British Youth Council, and. What we were talking about was our experiences of being in a, a smaller charity with Vicky and a larger charity with me at Sue Ryder, um, but how we've the principles of of stewardship uh, and, and and building relationships uh, with uh, trusts uh, can transform your income. Uh, so that was uh, really our, our our message, and. Um, the the event uh, itself, the conference, uh, um, I think was uh, was a very good one, uh, and it really felt that was the, uh, the 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 theme running through the the sessions. Really, was uh, uh, it, it um, is about um, uh, relationships, really, and, and, and treating trust as uh, people um, and not as as some kind of uh, institution, uh, and and that you, that you can people were sharing how they'd. They'd grown their income by um, really building uh, those uh, relationships with uh, individuals behind trusts. And, and to your point about uh, bringing trusts uh, together alongside or funders together alongside um, fundraisers, I think that can only be a, a good thing in trying to bridge that divide um, and giving them the op- uh, fundraisers the opportunity to ask those you know questions to to funders to to just understand where they're they're coming from better and 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 understand where they uh see uh see themselves going uh so uh, i think it's a great thing that the uh the conference uh, has that uh side of it um and for the trusts and foundations who um are so open to um participating in it Absolutely, I completely agree. And just picking up on on the point that you made about 
trusts and fundraisers themselves working in partnership with with one another is so critical. I think as trust Mm -hmm. fundraisers ourselves, we seem to see them as an institution um, just to get funding out of them. But I think a lot of trusts have come to realise that it's more of a partnership working that's going to be more important to solve such large-scale problems that we have in our society today. And in order to do that, it's not just about money, it's about expertise, it's about networking, and it's all those additional skills that are really going to be important, that are going to lay the foundation for us to achieve the goals that we want to do in the future. Absolutely. And obviously, before we um, touch on a few questions which um, we're going to discuss today, I know on the top of everybody's mind is the coronavirus. Of course. You've seen, um, for example, the National Emergencies Trust at the moment, um, as of today, uh, raise up to £11 million, which is fantastic. It shows a sector can come together and people um, can come together in a short period of time. But I just wanted to ask you what impact, and maybe it might be too early to tell, um, but what impact do you think that this will have on trust fundraising going forward or for our sector as a whole? It's an interesting one. And I... I wonder, well, certainly my sense in what's been I've hearing and and, um, uh, direct conversations I've had with trust that there there is very much a a focus on getting charities, uh, giving charities what they need. And that is unrestricted at the moment. And I I think that's a really interesting movement and whether it will uh, continue uh, after we come out of this crisis, uh, we'll wait and see. But but, um, I I think there's a real kind of commitment from trust to um, to, to help. Um, And I think the main way that organisations need help really is just that that core funding to keep the services running and to be there for uh, their their beneficiaries. So I think that's a that that's a really encouraging development. And and like you mentioned earlier about kind of um, uh, trusts and um, uh, charities kind of part, working in partnership and seeing the roles that they can both play beyond just the the funding relationship. Uh, I think um, the more that happens that can only be um, a, a good thing um, and I think trust can have a really kind of coordinating role uh, to play as well as they're getting so many um, different applications that for for those that maybe have a little bit more administrative resource to kind of put people together and say you know you're doing this um, and and this other charity is doing this can can we work together on it um, I, I think that that would be a, a really good thing Absolutely, and I yeah completely agree. From my angle as a trust fundraiser myself, over the last week, mm. I'm really encouraged by the number of funders reaching out to our organisations that we work for. Because I've spoken to other trust fundraisers in the sector as well this week, and they're becoming increasingly flexible and understanding. I know that we have to yeah. respond to this immediate need. Um, so some funders have come, as you rightly said, said all of the funding that we're giving up. Um, from this moment on will be unrestricted for a time period. Um, Others have said, for example, the National Lottery Community Fund um, have said that they're willing to be more flexible, you know, moving deadlines and having a more adaptable approach. And I think sometimes in in, in years gone by within trust fundraising, that hasn't been the case. And it's really nice to see funders and charities working together on that front. um, And hopefully that will pave the way moving forward as well. I hope so. 
and a report on the civil society. So if we just take a, a kind of a blue sky thinking approach to this, I read the report a couple of days ago that said charities are going to lose around four billion over the next twelve weeks, which is a substantial figure. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, a bit mind blowing, isn't it? Um, and actually, I think if I remember rightly, four billion is is around about what trusts and foundations collectively give each year. Uh, so um, if, if I if I remember rightly, so uh, when you when you uh, think of it like that, then you can obviously you know that it's it's more than trusts and foundations could could possibly do, and and uh, and, and government and uh, individuals all have a uh, a role uh, to to play in that. And I, and I know certainly my own organisation that we I think like many charities, like just the the removal of public fundraising or so much public fundraising like not being able to put on events and uh and um uh to to not be able to um do face-to-face fundraising that we're estimating kind of a loss of half of our fundraise income over the next uh, kind of three-month period um, and also we've closed all our shops currently which is a big for Sue Ryder we've got 450 shops across the UK so that's a big source of income so we're actually estimating per month a funding gap of four million pounds uh, so it's an incredible need uh, that 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 we have, and and so we're currently, you know, uh, talking to government and philanthropic partners about how they can uh, help us uh, with that. Yeah, of course, of course, and it must be a really challenging time for uh, the you know the beneficiaries of Sue Rider and mm-hmm. other organisations um, across the country because you know the the coronavirus pandemic has affected every single country in the world and every yes. segment of society but particularly it's hard on um those in 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 a vulnerable state uh, and in, in living in disadvantaged communities and it's many of those communities that organizations like yours and mine um help to serve and so naturally that's where the pain is going to be felt the most because mm. it's going to be difficult for them to recover so i think the more the government and the more philanthropic organizations and individuals can come together which they have been doing um, only within days so it's really encouraging to see that while it's such a, a difficult time for everyone I think a lot of organizations and individuals are coming together for a common purpose and hopefully um, we can you know ride this rough patch and come out the other end yes absolutely brilliant thank you Andy so now we'll kind of um, go into looking at trust fundraising in a little bit more detail um, with your expertise and I love to hear what you have to say because I really am interested in um, what you've achieved at Sue Rider, it's been incredible. Um, it's got praise from across the sector, um, and obviously that has led you to speak at the Institute of Fundraising Conference. So I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. And what I wanted to start off is when you have such a an amazing role as head of trust at Sue Rider, what are the key elements for you in building a successful and sustainable trust and foundations program? Because it's not just about quick wins. Um, and what areas have you developed at Sue Rider when you started? So, for example, what were your aims and objectives within the first six months? Because it's quite a massive role, isn't it? So how did you kind of take it forward and, and build on the success previously done by your predecessors? Absolutely. And I, I think that's a really good place to start is uh, the point you make about the, the work done by your predecessors. And I think as trust fundraisers, we're always uh, kind of following, we're in line of a, 
a legacy of those who came before us and and um and and often um some great relationships that have been developed uh, by our uh, our predecessors um so i think i always recognize that that there we we are kind of guardians of relationships with our trusts and the trust themselves and the people behind them have had often had such a long relationship with our organizations so i think it's it's really key for us to to see our roles as guardians for whatever period we're going to be in our charities uh, and to really protect and enhance those relationships as much as we we can so when i i joined to ride I, I was uh, ju- just really spent time in those kind of early months uh, understanding the portfolio um, and um, uh, doing uh, some analysis really to uh, see uh, which trusts um, had uh, given to us um, and over a 10-year period what it looked like so how, how many trusts had given to Sue Ryder at what levels um, and just understanding yeah who who um, are our kind of warmest um, uh, trust um, and it's really looking at where do we spend kind of our time uh, and and I, I'm a big believer in like you know the, the um, 80-20 rule um, which I, I think almost always plays out. And so in, in the case of fundraising, that um, uh, 80% of your income is, and sometimes more, is likely to come from uh, 20% of your uh, supporters. So um, as that applies in, in trusts, I know for, for Sue Ryder, um, 82% of our income comes from trusts giving um, 10K and above. Um, and that particularly there is uh, 13 uh, trusts over the last couple of years who have given us um, over 3 million between them. So so our relationships with those 13 are going to have a massive impact on what we achieve uh, each year in terms of our, um, our income. So that's really our focus is that we would spend more time on that smaller group of trusts and make sure that we are looking at how we make the most of the relationship with them how do we ensure that they have um relationships with the key people in our organization um so the 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 chief executive um if they're funding a particular project area the the senior so say the director of nursing um uh, and having having those um uh, key relationships in place um also making sure that we understand where they're at as much as possible, um, who are the uh, key decision makers um, in them, what, what is their kind of connection uh, to us and can we, can we discover any more uh, kind of nuance in uh, that connection? Um, so in some cases that there, there might be a really personal connection of being you know, a, a charity with um, hospices uh, that we often find that people have had a very personal experience like locally they might have had friends neighbors employees who have been cared for at one of our hospices so it's making sure that we know as much as we can uh, about them uh, and develop those relationships make sure that they understand how um, where we're going as an organization and they feel like they're on the inside track and that, that it feels like it's natural for us to be talking to them about the, the next thing that we do together. So whatever they're funding, we're thinking, okay, well, what's, 
what comes after that what's the next uh area that that they could could get involved in and trying to make it as seamless uh, as possible um and then just ensuring that we um are making them feel uh included and, and appreciated um as we we possibly can um and so we're very intentional about um having uh with our the trust of obviously the stewardship and cultivation plan but then also having for the trust that we manage a, a, a calendar where we will have our, our trust lifts listed and then as we look through the year so our year runs from april to march that we're, we're looking at all the opportunities we have to um make it a, a touch point um with those those trusts and so whether it's uh, an event or you know is it a newspaper clipping about um, an area of um, interest to do with our work. Um, is there a way we could um, do a surprise gesture uh, to them? Um, obviously trying to meet with them uh, as often as feels uh, appropriate um, to, um, you know, to a surprise thank you card or, um, or, or a kind of recognizing a milestone that we share together. So, so it is really like looking after your your nearest and dearest because they, they will be the ones that have most potential to transform uh, your income uh, year on year. And, and, it, and it may be that in the stages you're in, you know, some of them, they're not in play. Maybe you've got a kind of, uh, they've asked for a, a year uh, break or um maybe you're in the middle of a grant with them so but you only need say when i was talking about those 13 at the start if a couple of those um are in a position to give significantly to you then that's gonna um drive your income and and obviously most importantly your mission um for uh, for for that year absolutely and there's so much valuable advice there um one thing that I really like what you said was build on your warm contacts and your parts of your portfolio that are warm. I think as trust fundraisers, you know, sometimes we have the inclination of prospect researching new funders potentially that are coming out in the next few months or so. And yeah. we go down that route, whereas we don't seem to focus on what we've already got and build on that as a foundation. And I think that's absolutely critical. Um, whereby you start from a solid foundation and then you build upwards and then you can increase the number in your portfolio. And I really like what you spoke about the vision of the organization, because if you're able to provide a trust or foundation and insight into what the organization's vision is, they're more likely to um, fund you multi-year and therefore become more sustainable. They're not just giving you a hundred K or whatever it may be for a one year period or even over two years, but they're feeding into what does the organization want to achieve in the long term? And then they become invested in that relationship. It's not just a financial transaction for them or something that they yeah. give, but they become invested. And as you said, talking to the trustees um, where possible to understand their motivations of giving is, is vital. Because if, for example, in your case, if you know one of their children or one of their family members um, has experiences of hospices, that might prove an important relationship um, because they understand the cause a little bit more. Just a couple of examples. In terms of the stewardship and cultivation, can you provide a couple of examples of where that's been done successfully and you've seen that firsthand? 
Yes, so uh, there was uh, uh, one trust who uh, is a family trust and we were in the middle of a, a three-year grant of uh, 10,000 a year uh, from them and um, I hadn't uh, met them before. Um, I was quite new uh, to the organisation at that point. Um, so I took the opportunity to ask them for a meeting and when I met with them, I, I asked them about if they saw any changes to their grant giving in the future. Um, and they went on to explain that um, as they were getting older, they were actually looking to spend out some of their endowment um, because they wanted to reduce the size of the trust for their children for when they came to take it over, make it more uh, manageable for them. And they said they were looking to give out larger grants uh, for capital projects. Um, and if we had one, uh, that, that they would kind of consider us. Um, and so from that, they um, invited an application for a hundred grand for for one of our uh, capital projects, um, and which they then awarded that grant. So by seeking out the meeting and you know asking that question, I kind of positioned myself to be able to respond to that opportunity. Um, so they might have, you you know, you never know. They might have got in touch and said, "Oh, this is what we're doing as a trust." But by putting myself in that position I was able to respond to it and and take yeah take the opportunity to get um this uh um much larger gift from them and another um uh example on the 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 kind of developing the relationship side um so I met a uh trust um for the first time to on, on a a center visit um and um they, they, um, she shared a really lovely story about how there's three generations of her family in their trust now and how they um, will um, often have Sunday lunch together and then afterwards they will kind of talk about charities and, and, and give in. Uh, and so after we, we met, I wanted to uh, recognise um, or, or uh, make a gesture to to uh, to thank her for for their support and for um and for the meeting um and so i decided to send them a uh german card game called Legretto. Um, i don't know if you've, you've heard of it but um it's a really fun game right. and it was just along the theme of the the sunday lunch uh so and i, I put in the note like uh, something like um oh um maybe this is something you can uh, play if you get some spare time after you know talking about charities so I think my point is just to, that we can be creative like this is like a nominal cost gift and I, I bought it myself but it was just something that I wanted to do as a gesture both of, of thanks to this trustee um, uh, and, and also just to, to yeah make I, I think that just uh, can make make her feel appreciated and she actually sent a lovely email back uh, to me um, just saying um, how much he appreciated the gift those little things that we can do can can really um, advance the relationship and, and and make things it feel more um, familiar absolutely and I think it's absolutely key and it goes to, back to an earlier point you made is that people give to people yes it doesn't matter that it's a trust or it's an organization. It may even be a corporate in corporate fundraising terms, but people give to people um, and build up that warm connection and, and trying to relate as much as you can to them and making it personalized goes a long, long way. And, and you've seen that in action. 
Absolutely. And and that's a really good point. Um, I know I've had um, in a previous uh, charity, uh, a, a administrator of a trust said that um, part of the reason that that trust gave to to us was because they, they really liked my manager at the time. He was the one uh, managing that relationship. Um, and I've um, uh, also had an instance where I'm um, talking to an admin and, and building up a relationship uh, with him of a, a grant making trust. And, and he, he was quite, um, he, quite candid about um, things. And he said that um, when I was asking him about our application, that he was in the process of basically it was, um, it was to buy some equipment and there was a choice like it was, um, you could potentially buy all of it or part of it and he was um one of his trustees had said oh they they could fund all of it another had said oh they would fund part of it um but because of the relationship i had with him um he was kind of advocating on our behalf to say oh go on you know uh, fund fund the whole kit um and obviously he was i think admins can be you know they build the relationships with the families and 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 are in uh, you know a respected position Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up getting the the funding for um, for the whole kit, um, and I genuinely believe that key to that was the the rapport that I'd built with him, that the fact that I made the phone call before I put in the application, uh, the fact that I was um, in touch with him by by email, and and ju- just uh, taking the time to to treat him as an individual meant that I think he was just more. I was more on his radar and when I when I checked in um, he, he was genuinely just trying to help um, as much as he could in his power as much as was appropriate um, to uh, to represent us to his uh, trustees. Absolutely and I think it's really important also to mention off the back of um, the point that you made is that these trusts and foundations have been set up to achieve their own aims and objectives and that is or public benefit, whatever the cause might be. So I think sometimes as trust fundraisers, we need to bear that in mind too, that they are organisations that have been set up, that are there to do good, and they want to do good. So we need to give them that opportunity um, by laying out a clear plan for them um, in terms of the programme or even a capital funding um, opportunity to show how they can add value. And I think that's probably one of the ways that I look at trust fundraising um, and I've grown to learn that over several years is how can that trust in particular add value to our program um, or our capital expenditure? Because what I've noticed, as I'm sure you have, is it's not just about the funds and the funds are obviously vital, but it's also about the networking opportunities. It's about the contacts because trustees of one trust may know a trustee of other trusts or they, and it's a quite a small world in a way. Um, so they talk yeah. to one another on, on, on a regular basis, I should imagine, um, particularly some of them. So we've, we've spoken yeah. quite a lot about building our warm portfolio. And I just wanted to take a moment to discuss your ideas around looking at a more of a colder approach, um, the ones that you want to go and approach. So the way we currently do it at uh, Action for Children is we take a more major donor approach. So rather than mm. just putting in an application to a trust or foundation, what we tend to do is we tend to either give the trust or foundation a call prior um, to explain our vision and our reasoning behind something, either 
um, to invite them to an event or a dinner that we're holding. So we held um, a dinner just last quarter, which was very successful, and we plan to do more events like that going forwards. So I just wondered, how do you make that colder approach and what are your strategies behind that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, what you described is the the best way to go, really, when it's uh, a, a kind of a cold um, approach. And, and it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that people give to people and the and also that the most powerful way to communicate really is is um in in person or um and and from the right person as well um so and and just contrasting that to just a cold letter like just when you when you don't unless you i think sometimes you get really lucky that um if you and it might be partly what organization you are um that they have some connection there or the cause that there's something that clicks but I think nine times out of ten just a letter um, when they don't know you um, uh, that then you're just gonna you're gonna be one among kind of uh, many and and um, your, your chances are much lower but I think where you can engage them uh, through someone they know or through an event where you can then meet them in person and, and it's probably with that um, event that they've been invited by someone they they know um in in most cases that that's where um the, the magic can happen really and you you get that um that 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 chance to 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 be on their radar really and to get noticed and um so our, our approach to it is really we we have a uh, a list really of um uh trust that we we would really like to uh, engage and we've we've um uh, qualified them to use that, that 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 common term. So, like, looked at why they're a good fit for us, and uh, and uh, yeah, why why we think they would um, they would fund us, and then we will look at the the connections that we um, we might have to them. So, are the industries that the trustees are in um, often they are the the great and the good, and and they've they've um, they've had success in a particular area so we will look at the people that we have that are in um, either on our trustee board or, or um, uh, high value supporters already who might have um, might also be in that industry and so then it would be natural to ask them well do you you know personally or by professional acquaintance these particular people and so approaches can sometimes you know happen through that way um, uh, and, and we would always look to, I think, um, events are a great entry point, uh, as I'm sure you've, you, well, as you've already said, it's been successful for, for you. Yeah, it is, it's just a great way in and an introduction to, to your charity. And especially if you can get your, um, if you've already got someone who's a trustee or a high value supporter of yours, inviting them on your behalf and bringing them, uh, to, um, uh, to the event and if they can be there on the night as well or or in the day um, then that's just your chance really to um, begin that relationship really and, and find out more about um, uh, them and what motivates them and is, is there something that you can then I think as well with an event to then ask them well would they meet with you afterwards because that I think should generally be your objective uh, 
um, is my sense of what works best, particularly for, for new people coming into your charity, that the event is a chance for them to get a sense of who you are. And then you kind of want to say, well, will you meet with us afterwards? And, and if you can get that, get their agreement to that, then you're, you're in a great place, I think. Absolutely. And you're almost halfway there. Um, because as you yeah. mentioned, the, the trustees um, and the introduction from other high value supporters that may be supporting your organisation and maybe in the same field as them and they've passed on the contact in order to um, you know, potentially work with your organisation or the events that you mentioned, that's only the entry point. As trust fundraisers, what we need to be aware of is just getting that and securing that one-on-one -on -one meeting because that's absolutely vital. Because as soon as they said yes to that, it shows that something mm. has lit a spark in them and they're really interested in, in what the organisation does um, and would like to hear more about it. Um, and I think that's the key is, is getting that meeting in the diary and, and, and kind of making sure that you're well prepared for that meeting as well. Um, and I also wanted to touch um, a little bit around contacting newly formed trust and foundations because i know this is a, a slightly contentious point in in amongst trust fundraisers because some argue you know you should you should contact them straight away and kind of get in there first but a lot of those newly formed trust and foundations haven't really got a criteria or a guidance um, from which you can go from um, many are just newly registered and they don't really know what they're going to give to at that stage or even if they do, it's not publicised. So I just want to know how you go mm -hmm. about identifying newly formed trusts and foundations. Of course, we know that there's many subscription lists available um, throughout the sector. But once you get that information, what do you do with that information? Yeah, I, to be honest, I, we, we don't tend to spend uh, much time uh, on that. And I, and I think it goes back to our conversation earlier about focusing on your your nearest and dearest and and we we know the the kind of common phrase that and it, it varies in the level but often like five times easier to keep a new i uh, keep an existing supporter than to recruit a new one I, and i think that kind of goes across all fundraising um and, and, I, and i think our uh success has been built on the relationships with our existing trusts and being able to respond to changes for them in their um, situations. So we've, in the last few years, we've um, had over a million pounds in uh, uplifts from trusts that were previously given at a smaller level, but have had a change of circumstance, uh, such as deciding to spend out their endowment or perhaps have come into funds because their their founder, one of their founders, has died, um, and we benefited from that. Um, I believe because of you know the relationships we have developed with them over time, and that we are in regular contact with them, so we're more likely to find out about it. So we can't influence the fact that that happens for them. They make that decision to like spend out their their endowment or spend out you know a part of it um but because we have the relationship with them that that's uh we're on their radar to um make them decide okay we're gonna we want to fund you know something for you so when it comes to the yeah newly formed trusts my my sense is that there's probably no harm in 
if you if you know something about the founder of those trusts those trustees and you have a sense that they're likely to be people who you can find out information about um in that they they they've made their wealth in a particular area and and maybe you can see that actually they've supported other charities in some way either through their company or through you know individual gifts so if you think there's a good fit there um perhaps doing an introduction letter especially if you made a phone call um and they've suggested that you know you could do that then i don't think there's any harm doing that i think most of the time it's probably not going to lead anywhere i would suspect um but i think the key is it goes back to knowing people and i think it's best to focus your time on those that you might have a chance of finding the connection to so if that newly formed trust is set up by someone who is um a uh, successful kind of wealth manager and that you happen to have a wealth manager in your um who's a supporter of you or a trustee then i think it's much better that that, that you encourage kind of them to approach on your behalf and just to make it about the relationship and say like oh um uh, i i see you've set up your own charitable trust and and you know wh- wh- where's your thinking at with that and um uh, by the way i'm a i'm a supporter of sue rider or i'm a i'm a trustee of sue rider and would really love to um kind of get to know you better and and just uh, if you are lucky enough to be in that position um i think we know that 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 route the peer to peer is often the most successful uh route um otherwise i think your chances are you know your is much more of a kind of if you get lucky kind of to hit you know like we were talking about earlier with the letters if it just so happened that your charity is one that kind of of course captures their attention um but i think the chances you know are, are much lower for that yeah absolutely and, and like you mentioned it's all about building those relationships and those connections which are mm. going to be key because those enable you to have a long-term sustainable potentially multi-year funding opportunity with them um so we've spoken um quite a bit about the external relationship to trust fundraising which is we know is absolutely critical because if that doesn't go right then um you won't get any funding through the door um but also an, an important aspect of trust fundraising in particular i think even when you compare it to other segments of fundraising is building trusting and positive relationships with your projects and services team um partly because the level of detail that some trusts require is a lot more than you would definitely see in individual giving capacity even corporate um and even potentially major donors so i think when it comes to trusts and foundations it's very much the kind of key relationship and i think other segments of fundraising often go to trust fundraising to find out the detail of certain projects first before they go to the the projects or services team so i just wanted to understand from your perspective what tips can you provide um us about working with your services and projects teams in order to develop compelling and robust cases for support because without those it makes it a lot more difficult to to get the the big um bucks through the door um because it's more difficult to sell that um to trust and foundations for the one of a better word so what are your tips and advice around that absolutely uh, i think um closing the feedback loop is the the key to internal relationships and um what i mean by that is uh i i think it can be so uh common um as as tr- uh, um trust fundraisers that we we can forget to feedback 
to our internal colleagues on the outcome of when they've helped us and given us information. Um, and I know there's, there's often service colleagues who would say like, oh, well, I provided all that information before and, and I never found out what happened to it. So I, I think it's key for us to give the outcome of what um, uh, they've helped us with and, and, and make sure that we're thanking them as well and recognise that they're helping us and they're a key part of our, our success. Um, so when we get that grant in, I think um, obviously thanking the uh, supporter is, is one of the, you know, has to be, you know, let's do that as quickly as we can. Um, uh, but then I think also soon after that, it's going back to our service colleagues who have been involved in, in the, um, the application and going back to them and saying thank you um, and appreciating them. And um, one of the ways I've done that um, is we have a, 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 a trusts uh, uh, update that we send um, to um, each of our, it goes to our hospice director and our um, the fundraising teams based at our hospice. And it's, uh, it's just a, a one page document, but we send it every quarter and it, it um, mentions uh, how much we've raised for that particular hospice from trusts. Um, it gives an update on uh, kind of applications we've made um, and we also often do like a spotlight on a trust section. So we're, because um, a lot of our trusts are um, uh, are regional and they, they support their local hospice. Um, so we, we have a, a brief section on um, the background to the trust, what our relationship is with, with them, the key people uh, in that trust. So just a, a very brief bio to say, oh, um, this person is uh, CEO of the local company or, or um, a local estate agent or whatever it is. And it also serves to um, close that feedback loop. So um, they get a sense in that. So they, they find out that, okay, we're, we've, we've fundraised for like 100,000 from trust in the last few months for that particular hospice. Um, we've got these particular trusts who are supporting um, and, um, and these are what they are supporting. And this has been really useful for me because it's built my relationship with the um, hospice director and I've had some really nice comments back um, about um, you know what they've learned from from it and kind of understanding who which trusts support their hospice um, and we also had a situation where we were um, trying to uh, reach this trust in Yorkshire um, who could give a six-figure gift um, they supported us about five years ago for, with like a 25 grand gift, but we didn't have any existing um, connection and they turned down like our last few applications. So we just put in our, in our trust update to say we were trying to, to uh, reach this, this trust and did anyone know the trustees? Um, and then our hospice director came back and said that um, the head of services uh, at the hospice was actually in a book club with the the trustees. Yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> so we, we talked to her um, and uh, and she approached them on our behalf um, and they ended up giving uh, two hundred fifty grand over five years um, to uh, to that hospice. So it just goes to show that you know you, you, the it's that six degrees of separation thing. You never know who, who knows who. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then the story that I was going to mention is that, like, in terms of thanking our colleagues, so, so we, for, for her going above and beyond like that, we arranged for uh, uh, flowers uh, to be um, 
uh, sent to her um, and, a, and a thank you card uh, from us. Um, so it's just, you know, it's the recognition uh, of, um, of our colleagues um, helping us. Absolutely. And that goes to show a lot about the culture of the organisation as well, I think. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And what I think I've taken um, from our conversation, whether it's internal or external, it's all about consistent and regular communication and making sure that it's appropriate to your audience. So for trust and foundations, it may be consistent and regular in a different way than it is to your internal colleagues, but making sure that you never lose that line of communication. Definitely. Yeah. And I would just say as well on the, uh, again, a benefit of just this, this trust update, which is, is by, you know, I, I design it like myself. So this isn't like a, I, I, I want to emphasize that this is just a really easy thing to do yeah. um, uh, for, for anyone. And I, if you're not already doing it, I think if you've got, depending on the size of your charity, um, you could do it by, you know, if you've got hospices or if you've got particular projects, do it to the, the head of services um, in, a, in a particular project area. Um, and yeah, it can be depending on how often you're fundraising for them, um, you, you can vary the length of it. But, but in, in terms of the education messages, like a key thing which I've been able to get across through this is that how we, we are generally fundraising for budget relieving expenditure. Um, and so what I mean by that is that, yeah, it is for our existing services. And I think sometimes we trust that people can get the impression that, oh, well, is it for extras? Are you, are you fundraising for um, uh, additional uh, aspects um, of our work? Um, and I think it's important, um, I, I think, for most charities is that we trust that you are I'm trying to uh, fundraise for your um, what's in budget, what you put in place uh, for for that year. So I think that's that, that, yeah, that's just the way um, it's been been helpful to kind of emphasise that message. Absolutely. And just touching on that, actually, it leads nicely on to the next part of the conversation, which is about unrestricted funding. Um, and of course, I think every organisation wants um, significant unrestricted funding for obvious reasons so they can spend it in in the way that they best see fit and I think times like these with the coronavirus going around it just shows the importance of unrestricted funds because the more organizations have those funds available the more likely they are to be flexible and adaptable and be able to adapt to things and the environment around them but I know working with trust for several years that that can be difficult um, and a challenging way of gaining funding and I just wanted to see your view of how you deal with that situation whether and have you had any success for getting significant funding from trusts and foundations for unrestricted funds or do you think um, that unrestricted funds should mainly be um, for other areas of fundraising to be able to prop up so individual giving for example um, and how you go about you know having that conversation with your other teams internally yeah it, it's an interesting one and certainly so I've worked with trust for probably about 14 15 years now in my uh, career and, and the way I've always understood how a lot of trusts see themselves is that they they don't want an organization to become too dependent on them and that they generally like to fund projects um, that are kind of kind of developmental um, or, or capital. A lot of trusts, obviously, we know um, are very fond of, of funding capital. 
um, and they see themselves, I guess, their role in the, the income streams uh, as, as more of that, um, uh, the, the kind of transformational um, aspect um, and, and see that other income streams like regular giving um, are, are for more uh, unrestricted. And, and that's a very broad brush because we know, you know, um, trusts are all so, so different um, in their own way. But then I think it, it has been changing and I've been really interested to see the, um, I, you may have seen like there's been a number of trusts and foundations that have started to go more to uh, kind of core funding um, and uh, Esme Fairburn, the Lloyd's TSB Foundation, uh, the um, uh, Gulf of Western Foundation. Um, there's a real uh movement it seems amongst uh some funders particularly in the social uh sector to um to offer that to to charities and and like um with the argument that it's it's um uh showing the yeah the the the, the trust they trust charities to know that they put the funding where the need is greatest yeah. um and if they've done their due diligence on that charity then why wouldn't wouldn't you um do that um, so, uh, and my experience, so Sue Ryder, actually most of our, uh, trust, um, uh, funding is, is actually restricted. Um, and I think particularly on the, the, the larger, um, larger grants. Um, and I think that that is probably, um, I would suspect still the, the, the trend, um, with, and with the major donors as well, that unless, Perhaps there's certain major donors who do give large unrestricted gifts. Um, I think often you find, or I find, that the larger the gift, the more likely it is to be restricted. And um, I think for our organisation, that hasn't tended to be an issue for um, bigger. Um, and so we, we do tend to have uh, other income streams uh, that, that provide more unrestricted funding. Um, so those shops being a, a you know an obvious example for Sue Ryder that does drive through a lot of unrestricted funding. I appreciate it can be harder for um, smaller organisations perhaps who don't have um, those um, as many unrestricted funding streams. And I think that's perhaps driven some of like you know those organisations I mentioned like Lloyd's um, and Esme Fairburn. They've been very much responding to seeing I think smaller medium sized organisations the the need for them to kind of have more uh, accessible funding and less um, uh, restrictive. Yeah. Um, and perhaps as well, there's an element where, you know, when smaller medium organisations, perhaps they can be uh, slightly less complex and, and there's a, a maybe more of a sense of what the funding, you know, is, is going to um, in a, yeah, in a more straightforward way, sometimes than perhaps larger organisations which uh, that have have quite a lot of strands to them, and 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 perhaps there's a slightly more of a reticence to to fund um, unrestricted for them. Um, that's that's more of my opinion, but, but that's my um, uh, my my, uh, my sense. But I'll be really interested in what's happening that uh, now with the response to the the coronavirus crisis whether that will follow through, whether there will be more of a kind of uh, trusts being willing to fund uh, un unrestricted uh, to organisations. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. The, the general trend has been that funders like Esme Fairbairn, as you mentioned, but also Garfield Weston and a few others, 
are more likely now than they were five years ago, five years ago to give unrestricted funding and it shows that funders are being responsive to the needs of charities and I think that's a important and encouraging sign for the sector as a whole and just touching on that I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about management costs and different charities call them different things um, but using the all cost recovery model um, that is everything it takes to deliver your project all back out backroom staff and things like that so I just wanted to know what your views are on that and how you package that for the want of a better word <laughs> yeah I, I um I think we're lucky, I, I guess, being a, a large organisation, we do have a, uh, a case for support. Um, so, and, and basically her role is uh, acting as a, a link person, really. Um, but what we do as, I guess, trust fundraisers with, uh, you know, managing relationships externally, her role as a case for support officer is to manage those internal relationships. So she will help build our cases um, for support um, for different projects. Um, and then pass those to to us to uh, shape into applications and tailor, you know, to the trust uh, that we we're looking to apply to. Um, so, and, and part of her role is as well. She does a lot of work on the budget, so she will help with the um, full cost recovery um, and um, and look at that. And look at that. So, so we do um, have a, a, a system to um, uh, incorporate those costs. So, if it's a, a nurse post for example um we will put a, a kind of allowance in there for um their uh kind of training um and uh kind of other uh, associated costs that go into um having having that post really uh so um and i think there's like yeah lots of different systems that i think different charities use and it's it's really uh, i i suppose it's a it's a bit of a case of how what feels kind of reasonable and you have to judge it on on the um on the 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 trust but i i certainly think like yeah somewhere between 15 20 percent or so seems to be a common acceptable yeah, figure and, 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 and yeah completely agree and i think that when we we're having this conversation and i and i think it's really important just like the unrestricted funding conversation it's charities need to be clear about the costs this is what it takes to deliver and for us to do a good job this is what we need. And I know some funders don't accept um, the full cost recovery model, and that's absolutely fine. But where possible, I think that all organisations should have that because, you know, it's important for the programme and it's important for the sustainability of charities to move forward and to deliver sustainable projects that serve their beneficiaries. And also to your earlier point, and something that I picked up from the second day of the trust conference when I was there and I met several funders, was that one of their advices was know your foundation and know your trust. Because as you mentioned, every trust is different. So some trust may have a different view on management costs or the full cost recovery model. So it's important that before you apply, you know what their view is on that and whether they'd be willing to have a conversation with you about how that is embedded in your budget. Absolutely. Great point. And um, do you have anything else to add, Adi, before we um, kind of call it a day um, in terms of anything else we've discussed today? Or Yeah, I, I suppose um, what I would say is so I, um, I've recently had a chance to uh, interview uh, several of our um, uh, kind of 
um, major supporters, trust supporters, um, and going along the lines of like we we're talking about, kind of really getting to know the the foundation and just asking them a number of questions like, you know, what their um, future strategy, um, uh, what makes them feel appreciated, um, what perhaps irritates them about what we as charities do, um, and and it really interesting uh kind of insights uh that i've had from that and and i suppose just to um uh summarize a couple of them um in case it's helpful is that the people i spoke to um that they don't uh expect a lot from from charities uh in order to feel appreciated actually what they're they're mainly looking for is that you um uh get your application in on good time you and and that you respond to their requests uh for information uh promptly um and that you read their their guidelines uh, uh more than anything so i i think the the bar is that means the bar is actually not that high and, and it means it really gives us the opportunity that if we're able to um do extra things that are appropriate um in terms of our communication that we can really stand out um as uh, as charities and, and just to give an example of what can make a charity feel uh, sorry make a, a trust feel uh, unappreciated one of um, a trustee i spoke to shared an example of a trust fundraiser who got in touch a year after his charity received an exceptional grant from them mm. and was asking oh could I could I apply again and that was despite her having sent him a letter saying um can you wait uh you know two years um before um coming back to us so it's just a little thing um but I think it does it becomes memorable for the wrong reasons because it shows a, a kind of a uh, a carelessness and perhaps even a, a kind of it, that kind of transactional thing that we were talking about earlier that that's not we, that's not what we want it to be like we don't yeah it, it, it's not um the way it should be so I think that was yeah a key a key learning point for me um from from those conversations yeah completely and, and you've described really well what it is to have um a good fundraising team and the importance of relationship fundraising. It's all about relationships, building those relationships early on uh, when you get into a role. Um, th therefore, you, you know, when you can see the potential and you can see that in, you know, six months, a year's time, you can see that progress being made with income coming through the door, which I think is really important. Absolutely. And I would say the, um, uh, the phone and the pen are um, your your best friends as a yeah. as a trust fundraiser, and, and I think uh, you know um, we can often hide behind uh, email um, in 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 the modern age. It's very easy to do, but but I think taking every opportunity where appropriate to um, speak to someone um, is gonna you're you're way more persuasive. Uh, um, verbally than um, than any written thing. Um, and again, I'd say with the, the, the pen that you should be handwriting, you know, uh, uh, your, particularly your thank you cards. Um, I, I think, you know, any opportunity you get to handwrite something is going to stand out so much because, you know, how often do we handwrite things these days? So the more you're handwriting things, um, uh, and, and obviously the envelope and when you write, uh, if, if you are sending it by um, uh, in the post, like um, uh, topping and tailing, adding a handwritten note as a PS, those little 
details I think make a massive difference and when you consider most trustees are of a certain uh, age and generation um, in, in most cases I think they notice it more uh, uh, than than most um, so uh, yeah I'd, I'd recommend a pen and the phone uh, absolutely things. great tips and I think that's absolutely it's really clear about making sure that you talk to your audience Thanks, Andy. Um, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast um, today um, to hear your insights, to hear how you've grown trust fundraising income. And I'm sure that um, you'll go from strength to strength and your team will go from strength to strength. And I'll hopefully sometime we can catch up um, and do another podcast. Thank you. That's great. Thank you everybody for listening and it was a pleasure to speak to Andy Watts, Head of Trust at Sue Rider. Our conversation touched on several different topics. We opened up by speaking about Andy's experience presenting at the Institute of Fundraising's Trust Conference last month. Andy spoke passionately about the need for funders and fundraisers to work in partnership with one another. We went on to discuss the COVID-19 situation, a topic that is on everyone's mind at the moment. As somebody who works within the sector, I know that is a challenging time for individuals and organisations, but it has been encouraging to see that organisations, individuals and funders coming together to shape our response to COVID-19 in such a short space of time. If you want to hear a little bit more about the sector's response to COVID-19, please check out some of our other podcasts that can be found on our website. We then went on to discuss trust fundraising in more detail, the key elements of building and growing a successful and sustainable trust and foundations program. This included building positive and trusting relationships with funders, making sure the funder buys in to the organisational vision, mission and values. In addition, we also spoke about developing internal relationships and how important that is in order to get an effective trust programme up and running, particularly because as an organisation you need to develop a robust and compelling case for support in order to present that to funders. We also spoke about the various ways in which you can engage trust and foundations through events to surprising them with one-off material and collateral, cultivation and stewardship plans, making sure that they feel valued and supported throughout their journey. We also spoke about unrestricted funds. Overall, it was a great opportunity to speak to Andy and I hope that you learn as much as I did. The one thing that I will take away from this conversation is the importance of relationships. As with all fundraising, trust fundraising is no different and it's all about relationships, both internal and external. We need to engage both to ensure that we create an effective, sustainable and long-term Trust and Foundations programme. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any feedback or ideas that you would like covered by us on Charity Chat, please get in touch at info at charitychat.org.uk. Thank you very much for listening. And that just leaves me to thank our corporate sponsors, 
Giant Squid Audio Lab sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images on our website, and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. <laughs>